coming to the studies, and we're very grateful for that. But this morning, John chapter 12, and let's go to the Lord as, as Father. May we remember to just kind of turn the ringers off our phones. And we, we got a few minutes in the Word, and this is a very important consideration as we read your Word and make application for us. And Lord, we know that uh, as we, as well as other Christians around the world, are observing what is called Palm Sunday, or looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus, that um, this is a special week for us as Christians, um, as we consider uh, what Jesus did for us, Christ crucified. And he poured his blood into the ground as he was crucified on that cross dying for our sins, and then put into a tomb, and he conquered sin and death by rising from the grave. I pray that that never grows old with us or dulled or loses an impact in our hearts. So, Lord, this morning, as we look at a familiar portion of Scripture, that I pray that, that Lord, that you would touch our hearts and that we would go out of this place with you speaking to us and seeing Jesus clearly. We give you this time, study of your word in Jesus' name, amen. So this Sunday, all across the world, Christians are observing what is called Palm Sunday. It begins Holy Week or Passion Week. In Jesus' day, of course, it was the beginning of Passover as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. He's on the back of a donkey's colt. He's riding from the Mount of Olives down past the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where later in the week that Jesus would be arrested as Judas the betrayer would come and he brought those temple guards to bound up Jesus and take him back to Jerusalem. And the next day he would be condemned to death and he was crucified on that hill called Golgotha, Calvary. And then he would be buried and he rose again the following first day of the week. And in John chapter 12, along with the synoptic gospels, it records to us what is called the triumphal entry of Jesus, Matthew 21, Mark chapter 11, Luke chapter 19, as well as what we're going to read about here in this chapter of John, all described Palm Sunday, and the triumphal entry of Jesus. And as we look at it, John's gospel is, is unique in telling us some things that took place right before the final week that helps us set the stage of what is taking place here. You see, a couple weeks, uh, several weeks prior to this, as we read in John chapter 11, the previous chapter, Jesus would raise Lazarus from the grave there in Bethany. Bethany was on the side of the Mount of Olives, a little village called the Town of Mary, only a couple miles from Jerusalem. And some scholars have called that miracle the miracle of miracles in the work and ministry of Jesus before his resurrection. It was, of course, that time that Jesus would declare that I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. As a result of that miracle, being close to Jerusalem, the word spread very quickly of Lazarus being risen from the grave. And in John's gospel, it tells us in verse 45 of chapter 11 that many believed in Jesus. And it was at that time that the religious leaders were more determined. They, they had a, more of an urgency to put Jesus to death. And the reason was is because they were afraid that they were losing their authority with the people. And also they were afraid that they would lose their positions in the nation. 
And many of the chief priests were of the sect of the Sadducees. Now, we've talked about going recently through Matthew, the two sects of religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that came against Jesus and were determined to put him to death. Now, they weren't of the same. They were a lot of difference between them. And the Sadducees, they only believe in the first five books of the scriptures, uh, the law of Moses. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And they, at this time, particularly, they want Jesus dead. Uh, And they also... John records very uniquely that they want Lazarus dead as well because he's bad theology for them. And Jesus, he would withdraw from there and he would spend the next several weeks in that area of Perea. Perea is on the east side of the Jordan River in the area that is Jordan today. And then he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He has told his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to be handed over to the religious leaders to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again after three days. We know that going through Matthew's gospel that we read at least six times Jesus told his disciples about his death and burial and resurrection, and they didn't understand what was going on until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he passes through the Jordan Valleys. He's making his way into Jerusalem. And in Jericho, that is there by the Dead Sea, uh, he heals blind Bartimaeus, which is in Jericho, only 25 miles from Jerusalem. And then also we read about the story, the account uh, in Luke's gospel of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector that's up in the tree. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down from there, for I'm going to come to your house today. And Zacchaeus would get saved and There's this big multitude, a great multitude is what the Gospels tell us, that is following Jesus, and he would begin to make the ascent up to Jerusalem. From the lowest point on the face of the earth, about 1,200 feet below sea level, to over 3,000 feet in, in Jerusalem, it's a steep climb, short distance, just over 20 miles. And as this multitude is there following Jesus, Luke again tells us that they're expecting that the kingdom of God is going to appear. They're expecting the sky to open up and angels to descend and to, to do away with Rome and the Roman soldiers that were there. That's what they're expecting. And Jesus, as he's making that ascent, that we read in Luke's gospel, that he would stop and tell them in the parable of the minas. That there was a nobleman that gave each one of his servants a, a mina and then he went to a, a faraway country and he received the kingdom to himself. But then he would come back, and those servants had to give an account to how they invested that mina. It's very similar, a little different than the parable of the talents that Jesus would tell in Matthew chapter 25. But it's very important for us to consider because we know that the Lord is coming back, and I believe he's coming back soon. And what he has given to you, the mina, the the gospel, the talents that speak of opportunities and the gifting that he's given to you, one day that you're going to give an account of what has been given to you. We're not going to give an account for our sins. That's been taken care of on Calvary's cross. Amen? Are we clear on that? But the Bible does say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. And we'll be judged what we have done, whether good or bad, in the body. 
We know that our works will be tried by fire, and they will be likened into wood, hay, and straw that will burn up, or precious metals that will shine forth. And I know that Romans 14 tells us the same thing. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I desire to hear, and I know you do as well, those words of well done, good and faithful servant. What has been entrusted to you and to me, the word of God, the gospel, are we investing in that, investing in the, the kingdom of God? Because those rewards that we receive are for all eternity. And what we have done for Christ, that's what's going to last. And that's why there's just a, a sense of urgency for me to remind you of these things, though you may know them, that Christ wants to use you and have you invest in the kingdom that will last forever. And as we will stand there, although I know for me, there's plenty of wood, hay, and stubble in my life that will burn up. But the things that will shine forth, I'm very grateful that I will be able to stand there in his grace and in his love to be rewarded for what he has done in me and through me. Invest in the kingdom, what has been given to you. So Jesus, as he makes his ascent up to Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, he stops at Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, according to Mark's gospel, and that's where Mary anoints Jesus for his burial. And with that all in mind, now Jesus comes to Jerusalem, comes to the Mount of Olives. As I mentioned to you, there's a large multitude, the gospels say, that's following Jesus up to Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that there's a great multitude that comes out of the city. Jerusalem had never seen anything like this before. And as he comes into Jerusalem, let's begin to read in John chapter 12, verse 12, that the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, had took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now we know from the other Gospels that Jesus, when he was on the Mount of Olives, he told a couple of his disciples to go to a nearby village, and there you will find a colt on which no one has sat on it. Loose it and bring it to me, and if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Why are you taking my colt and loosing it? And you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. That little donkey Jesus would sit on coming into Jerusalem. And that donkey was to lift Jesus up. And I want to remind all of us of this, that he chooses the weak things of the world and the, weak, and the foolish things of the world and the things that are not to bring the not, the things that are that no man will glory in his presence. He wants to use you. And he wants to use you to lift Jesus up. And as he comes into the city, the people are waving the palm branches. They're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now we do, I've mentioned this before, we, we call this the triumphal entry. But really that comes in Revelation chapter 19 in his second coming when he comes back uh, to this mount. And at that time we're told that he'll be on a magnificent white horse. He's going to be coming in great power and glory. He said it's going to be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. Every eye is going to see him, and the armies of heaven are going to follow him. That's you and me. That's our future. Remember, when we talk about the return of the Lord, there's two specific events. There's two aspects to the return of the Lord. 
that he will come for his church and the rapture of the church, which I believe will take place before the 70th week of Daniel that we will talk about in Daniel chapter 9, the final seven-year period right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ, where Jews says that he comes with ten thousands of his saints, the armies of heaven following him, that's you and me, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, the King of Kings. Here they're crying out the King of Israel in, in John's gospel. Matthew and Mark say uh, and write that the, they were crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke writes that they cried out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. All four gospels are given clear indication that they're ascribing to him the title of Messiah. And as he is the King of kings, we know, and the Lord of lords, that he will come in great power and glory the second time. And he will touch down on the Mount of Olives. And then the book of Zechariah tells us that that mount will heave in half and he will usher in the kingdom. You see, the people at this time in John chapter 12, they're expecting him to do that now. They do not understand that they are in the middle of God's redemptive plan, that he hasn't come this, the first time to usher in the kingdom. But he came to go to a cross. They wanted to be free. They thought the greatest need was to be free from the Roman oppression and the Roman you know, occupation and soldiers and all that. But they didn't understand that the greatest need was to be freed from sin. And that's the greatest need of any man or any woman. Listen, there are a lot of important things that, that we consider and, and that we you know, know that it's important for us or perhaps that we'd like to see when it comes to our nation, when it comes to our families, when it comes to the world. But the greatest need of any man or any woman, listen, is to be freed of sin. And Jesus provided that on the cross at Calvary. And as here the people are waving the palm branches and, and cheering, they're expecting the kingdom of God to happen, to come and the, this kingdom to be set up. But Jesus, he would be weeping. We know that during this week, there was two times that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And in Luke's gospel, as he came in, and blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, the Pharisees were saying, tell your disciples to be quiet, that this is blasphemy. They're ascribing to you Messiah. And Jesus would answer, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. He would then weep as he entered into the city. He drew near in Luke's gospel. Let me read it to you. As he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And he talks about how destruction would come to them, which happened in 70 AD, because you did not know the time of your visitation. If they should keep quiet, the very rocks will cry out, because what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 9 again, that this is not only this day of fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, but also Daniel chapter 9, as we will see that most amazing prophecy, the 70 weeks of Daniel. You should have known the day of your visitation. The very rocks will cry out. So the crowd is cheering and Jesus would be weeping. The second time, right before he went to the cross, he's weeping over Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you to myself as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing to come. And now your house is left to you desolate. And you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
And as we read here, this chapter, a portion of it, chapter 12, deals with the last week again of Jesus' ministry. The synoptic gospels fill in details about it, up leading to his crucifixion and burial and resurrection. But I want to read something that I think is very important for us to consider as we look at this in verse 20. We read out there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Again, we're still in John chapter 12. And then he came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. In the Synoptic Gospels, we see the events again in detail. What happens during Passover week as Jesus is in Jerusalem. He would be there at the temple. He's teaching the people. The religious leaders are coming to him and trying to set traps for him, accuse him, find fault with him that they might have him arrested. But they couldn't find any fault with him. And so here we see that John records how certain Greeks came to Jesus to see him, to talk with him. Chronologically, it is believed that this event takes place on the third day of Passover week. The synoptic gospels kind of fill in uh, all the information and the events that took place up to this time that the Greeks come. As on the first day of the week, he enters into Jerusalem. Then the next day, we know that he would go to the temple and he cleansed the temple, right? He overturned the money changers' tables. He drove out those who sold the sacrifices and he rebuked the religious leaders. And he would say to them, my house is a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. You've made it into a place where you're ripping the people off. Because Annas, who you read about, actually the first one that Jesus, as he would go through a series of trials, he went before Annas, the high priest. And then Caiaphas, who was the official high priest over the Sanhedrin council that he stood before, and they condemned him to death before he's taken to Pilate and the Romans. And Annas and Caiaphas are making a lot of money in the selling of the sacrifices and the exchange of money. You can't bring your Roman money. You can't bring your money from, from Ethiopia with the image of Candace on it. You need to exchange it for temple money as they were to give an offering. And it was at a very high rate. And the sacrifices, your animal's not good for, for a sacrifice. But we do have some pre-approved lambs here that you can buy at a very high price. And so they were making a killing off of all this. Jesus sees it, and he says that, that this is my father's house. And my house is a house of prayer, and you've made it into a den of thieves. It is written, and he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. And when you read Isaiah 56, 7, it reads that my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. Why were the Greeks there? Here they were. They were there at the Jewish feast. And, and they came to worship. And why were they there? They were there because the Greeks believed in many gods. And they thought grander the temple, then greater must be the God. And here is this magnificent temple in Jerusalem. We've talked about it before, made of huge stones. You can see some of those stones, the remains of them, the foundational stones, that are absolutely incredible. The, the temple itself was believed to be 23 stories high, overlaid with gold. Large courtyards where thousands of people could meet. And they came 
to this temple because they must have a grand God. Their God must be awesome. And they wanted to learn about the God of Israel. They were to be a witness to the nations. They were to declare the true and the living God. But all they were seeing as they came into Jerusalem is all this dead religion and and all the ripping off of the people and all of this. And Jesus says that you've made my house, which is a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. It's to be a house of prayer for all the nations. I consider this and I think, what do people see when they come into this house of the Lord? What do they see when they go to your home? I pray that they see something of the reality of the Lord. There are people that come here that they've never read a Bible verse. It used to be when I was young that a lot of people, they went to church, had some affiliation with the church. At least, you know, most people belong to a church. But today, we see people, they come here, maybe somebody brought them, they've never have had a Bible. They've never read a verse out of the Bible. They don't know anything about Jesus. They haven't heard about the, the crucifixion and resurrection about, of Jesus Christ. What do they see when they come here? And what I pray is that they see Jesus. That we would present to them Jesus. That they come into our homes as they look at our lives. You see, they can go to a church and they can see a lot of hype sometimes or entertainment or, you know, weirdness or whatever. But what I pray is that people would see Jesus clearly, that we would be a witness to them of the love and provision and reality of Jesus Christ. And here they are. They want to see Jesus. And they come to Philip. Now, why did they come to Philip? It's suspected that because Philip was a Greek name, they came and Philip receiving this request from them, uh, probably not knowing what to do, then turns to Andrew. So Andrew would take Philip and go to Jesus. Now, Andrew is interesting, the brother of Peter. You don't hear about Andrew very much in the Gospels. Matter of fact, I believe John is the only time that you really hear about Andrew besides a list of apostles. And when you do read about Andrew in John's gospel, every time Andrew is bringing someone to Jesus, in John chapter 1, he brings his brother Peter to Jesus. In John chapter 6, he brings a little boy with the fish and the loaves to Jesus, and Jesus would take them and break them and fed 5,000. Here he brings the Greeks to Jesus. I like Andrew. I like what's recorded of him because... It tells me and it shows me and it really convicts me that what I am to do is to bring people to Jesus. You see, oftentimes what we do is we want to bring people to our political stance. We want to bring people to, you know, this thing or that thing or what's the most popular thing or what culture is saying that we are to do. Listen, bring people to Jesus. That's who they need to see. The gospel of Jesus Christ. I understand that we got political views. I understand that there are things of interest that we talk to people about. But I learned from Andrew because he brought people to Jesus. And that's what you and I are to do. So they come to Jesus saying, hey, these Greeks want to see you. And let's continue reading in verse 23. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. 
And most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now, we don't know if Jesus went to see them or spoke to them directly or if this was a message given to them via Andrew and Philip. And Jesus says, the hour has come. Now, throughout John's gospel, you read that the hour has not come. Uh, That the hour has not come, Jesus said. Well, now he's saying the hour has come to be glorified. And then he talks about a grain of wheat that is buried. Jesus doesn't give them some Old Testament passage or scripture or prophecy concerning his death and burial and resurrection. He didn't point to the Hebrew scriptures that pointed to him being the source of, of mankind, uh, about being, uh, you know, being the savior of mankind, about being glorified. They didn't know the scriptures, in other words. And as you go through the gospels, oftentimes that as they came and asked him questions or the religious leaders, that Jesus would say, it is written, or do you not read? He would answer, he would point to the Old Testament scriptures. Show us a sign, they said, that you really come from God, the religious leaders. And he said, what a wicked and perverse generation, that no sign's going to be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights and the belly of a large fish so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? Here's a sign for this generation. And here's a sign for every generation. The sign of the resurrection. So here, these guys, being Greeks, they're men of philosophy and science. And so Jesus talks to them about the law of nature. And he gives an analogy of a seed being buried and dies and then produces more grain. They said, we wish to see Jesus. Now, that word see, it doesn't mean that they wanted to take a selfie with Jesus. It means that they wanted to to know him. They wanted to perceive him. Uh, Jesus answers them by saying this, that if you really want to see me and you want to understand me, you want to know about me, you do it through my death and my burial and my resurrection. And just as that seed, it dies, and that seed will never become a plant unless it dies and is buried. So the death and burial of me is receiving, you know, and necessary for my glorification. It is the hour of my glorification. And may we understand that if people want to truly see Jesus, listen, that they are to see him through his death on Calvary's cross, his burial, and his resurrection three days later. Sometimes people will present Jesus as being just a religious leader or a spiritual, you know, uh, teacher or something like that, a great teacher or whatever. Those particularly of the progressive churches will do that. Sometimes pastors today will present Jesus in a particular way when they're more seeker-sensitive that hey, why don't you connect to Jesus or relate to him? And they skip around the fact that we're lost sinners headed for hell unless we turn to the only Savior, Jesus Christ, and that he died on Calvary's cross for my sins, for your sins, and was put into that tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and rose again after three days. Some people try to give the gospel without talking about the cross and the resurrection. The only way that you will ever see the Lord's love and provision for you, his reality, the meaning of the gospel, 
is in the light of Calvary's cross in Philip. They want to see me, a popular individual. Maybe perhaps they were at the triumphal entry as people were waving the palm branches, you know, and crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One who is, is right now uh, a powerful orator, you might think that I am, or a philosopher. You go and tell them that they will see me truly. In the light of my death, that Gentiles, Greeks, came to him in the beginning of his life. Matthew chapter 2, right? The wise man that came from the east continues. And in verse 25, and he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for, for eternity. And, and will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him I follow father will honor now it seems like that jesus maybe is changing the subject all of a sudden talking about a seed that dies is 26 that we just read here that is connected to what jesus previously said the weed analogy of verse 24 that he uses to show a principle that death is the way to life in jesus case his death led to grace in christ well it's the same case in the case of a disciple of jesus the principle is similar. A disciple must hate his life, he says, in this world. Now, verse 26. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even mean that you and I, that we walk around going, I hate my life. I hate my wife. I hate my kids. I hate my parents. I hate everybody. I hate their guts. You know, people are going, boy, I really want to be a Christian, you know. <laughs> Jesus does not teach us that we're to hate our spouses and kids and parents to be his disciples. Of course, that would be very contradictory to other scripture. Husbands, you're to love life. We're to love our kids. Jesus said that this is the greatest commandment, that you love God and you love others. We know that Jesus said to his disciples that you're to love others just as I have loved you. So in Luke's gospel... To hate his life means to be committed to Christ. That you have no self-centeredness. That is, this life is not a priority over being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That your love for Christ is of your heart and the priority of your life. You're going to lose out. Jesus came to give us no, Jews and Greeks alike, the because it's amazing how many books are out there, how many seminars are given, how many conferences there are, you know, self-help gurus, mentors and coaches, how to be successful in this area of our life financially, mentally, physically, by the scores. And Jesus comes along and he says, you want to get a life? You want to be successful in life? Die to self. You don't live for yourself. You're not centered around self, but you center your life on Christ. You live for him. And our Lord says, this is the key. It's strange about, you know, the perfect man, the perfect life, focused on self all the time. And as weird as it might be initially, it's a key to life abundantly. If you live for yourself, focus on yourself, you're going to lose out on life. You're going to be cheated, and you will be cheated, 
and you will go through life wondering. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? When we were kids in high school, we used to, you know, always, you know, be, you need to get a life. Well, you want to get a life? Then die to self. And you know what you will truly find? Listen, not because Pastor Jeff says so, because Jesus said so. Because the Word of God declares it. You die to self, or joy in this life. You will enjoy life. You will have peace in your life. And you will love your spouse, and you will love your kids, and you will love others more when you make Jesus Christ the priority of your life. When you die to self and you live for him. Church picks up on that. All with the prosperity and what's in it for me mentality and, and all of this. A focus on self. And it can sound so good and it's so pleasing to the flesh. But you, that's this. And when you say, and you're my savior. You called me to have devotion and commitment to you. And I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to stand by you. And I'm going to be true to you. You. Even when it's not easy. He's not promising that you won't have any problems. Or go through any heartache. Or go through any difficulty. But as you live for him. You're going to experience that life abundantly that he has for you. Listen, particularly, it's for all of us, but for you who are young, don't buy into what the world and culture tells you to live for yourself and just do what everybody else is doing. You live for Christ, and you experience life the way it was meant to be experienced, a greater degree than you ever thought he would. He will do exceedingly abundantly above all you hope or think. But you die to self. And you say, Lord, whatever you have for me and whatever you want for me, I trust you. And I'm going to live for you. Because as I die to self, I'm going to find it, what life is really meant to be. If I live for self, I'm going to lose out. And there is nothing in this world that is worth trading in the deception of the world, the lies of the world, the counterfeits of the world, to trade in to when you stand before him on that day and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, present you before his presence with exceeding joy as you will be presented before the Father And the Son and the Father are going to rejoice over you. This world is all coming to a crazy end. If you haven't noticed, this world is messed up. But you have opportunity to bring people to Jesus. Let them see Jesus. For you to live for him. And you'll find life. And you'll be blessed. I tell you, you wait, you see. You'll see it to be true. So, Father, thank you.
Thank you so much for these words. And we know living for you doesn't mean that we, we will have tribulation. You promised that, but we can be of good cheer. For you've overcome the world. And we know that way to, to really experience that life abundantly that you have for us, of peace and joy and real purpose, is to come to you and live for you, not to live for self. Just allow you to work in our lives in the way that you desire and want to. And Father, I thank you that we're here to hear the words of Jesus and truth given to us because we know it's not of the world. It's not the way of the world, but it's the way of truth that you told us. Father, I want to pray if there's anyone here that is in this sanctuary. I know the coffee shop is full. I know that people are listening on live stream, listening to the radio later, that if you have not come to Christ for salvation and forgiveness of sin, that he is the singular Savior of the world. You can't save yourself or a church. It's a free gift, salvation. We're justified freely by the redemption that is through Christ Jesus, by his grace through faith. It's not of our works, but it's coming. And as we believe in our hearts the Lord Jesus and confess with our mouth that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Jesus cried, it is finished from that cross. He did the work. So if you've never made a commitment to Christ, will you come to him? He is your salvation, and today is the day of salvation. Get right with the Lord. Turn to him. That's what the word repent means. Repent and call out on the name of Jesus. In your heart, right where you are. And you can say, Jesus, I come to you a sinner. I confess that I'm a sinner. I've needed forgiveness, and you went to the cross and died for me. And you rose again from the grave, and you conquered sin and death. And I ask that you would be my Lord and Savior. And I thank you for doing that for me and your love proven to me in this new beginning and belonging now to a kingdom that will last forever. Help me to live for you, to learn of you, to walk with you closely. Thank you for this new beginning in Jesus' name. Father, for all of us, that we would give people Jesus. Let them see Jesus through his death and burial and resurrection. So wonder it was Paul when he came into Corinth. He said, I came preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we need individually. That's what our families need, this community, our nation. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And a heart that has changed. We thank you for your provision and love for us. And this week, may we marvel at the cross and resurrection, never growing dull of it. We look forward to coming again and celebrating that. Bless everyone here now as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, would you please stand?